This episode of Basel Podcast is sponsored by Sikni. Sikni is a modern version of an employee satisfaction questionnaire that helps you bring out the meaning in work. I tried it out and it was pretty impressive. So first of all, it was technically well implemented. It didn't have the usual feel of a paper form that has simply been converted into a web form. Second, the questions were relevant and made me think. Just answering the questionnaire was useful. And third, the questions were so insightful that I was intrigued to hear what the results were going to be. Signy loves Bosslevel podcasts, so they're offering listeners a 500 euro, 500 euro discount on the first package you purchase. Just mention that you heard about the questionnaire on Bosslevel when purchasing. You can find more information on signy.fi, that's S-I-Q-N-I.fi. The link is in the show notes. Before we get started, I have a bit of an update. After 11 years at Reactor, I'm leaving to start a new company. I'm founding it with Lauri Ahonen, a designer genius and the best man for my wedding, and Antti Alailka, a successful tech entrepreneur whom I've also known since we were kids. The new company is called Tomorrow Labs. You can read more from a Medium post I wrote, or you can check out our website. The links are in the show notes. So... Scary but exciting times ahead. In the previous episode, I asked for questions from listeners so I could make the podcast a little more interactive. And thank you so much for sending them. I want to try taking it up a notch. So instead of emailing me in text form, I'd like to ask you to send me audio. So record with the best equipment you've got, but don't let the gear prevent you. Your phone's microphone is good enough. Uh, In the clip, shortly introduce yourself and then fire away. And don't limit yourself to questions. If there's anything you'd like to say to the Basel audience, go ahead. Comments, questions, thoughts, ideas, insights, whatever you feel like sharing. And uh, aim for less than a minute, then send your clip to sami at basselpodcast.com. That's S-A-M-I at basselpodcast.com. And who knows, maybe I'll play your clip in future episodes. For the interview you're about to hear, I flew to Stockholm, where Stephen Bange was running a workshop. The awesome people at Crisp were kind enough to let me interview Stephen at their office on the day before the workshop. So thanks for hosting us, Matthias. Getting to Stockholm wasn't easy, because while at the Arlanda airport, I got stuck in a toilet. The person before me had gotten out just fine, but for me, the door just wouldn't open. I tried turning the lock to both positions, but it didn't work. I tried pulling harder, just in case there was a little more friction than I expected, but it didn't help. It got to the point where I had to... I actually had to tell myself to stay calm. I really actually did that. Um, Luckily, I wasn't in a hurry, so I just thought that I just need to figure out what's wrong with the lock. I tried not turning the lock all the way to the other position. It, that didn't help. I tried pulling hard again. It didn't help. And then I realized, what if, instead of pulling, I would push? I did that, and it worked like a charm. The door opened. And outside the door were a couple of fellow passengers ready to help me rip the door open. I got out and said... I'm a fucking idiot. 
They laughed, and I deserved it. I'm pretty sure they told the story at their first meetings of the day to break the ice. I'm happy to have helped. Okay, moving on. Today, my guest is Stephen Bungay. Stephen is the author of The Art of Action, a book on strategy execution under uncertainty. The book draws from lessons learned in military organizations where they've had to deal with complex situations 200 years before businesses needed to. I personally always cringe a little when I hear people talking about military leadership in the context of knowledge work, but Stephen knows where to draw the line of applicability, and that's actually one of the topics we discuss. We also talk about why our plans don't always lead to the outcomes we want, or why our plans don't always lead to the actions we want, and what to do about that. I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, well, my name's Stephen Bungay. I work now um, independently as a consultant and speaker and writer, but I also teach at various business schools. Um, the main one I teach at is Ashridge Hult um, Executive Education. Uh, I only teach executives. I like people who have been mugged by reality. <laughs> so I don't do any MBAs or any of that sort of thing. I take tired, cynical, beaten up middle and senior managers <laughs> and try and show them that they're really the ones who count in all organizations and that their lives can be a lot better than they usually are. Are you trying and to give them hope? Can, can, yeah, give them hope, <laughs> give them meaning. And connecting them with meaning yes. is actually a really important part of it. Yeah. So you've actually authored books on military history and business strategy. Yeah. And you published your first book on military history after spending 20 years as a management consultant at Boston Consulting Group. That's right. So... How does that happen? How do you do management consulting for 20 years and then write a book on military history? Well, it seemed to me to be a continuous process, actually. Um, <clears throat> we have to start the other way around. I, my interest in military history goes back to childhood. Uh, but quite quickly, I got more interested in strategy uh, than I was in going, you know, bang, bang and zap, zap. Um and I played board war games. Um, I subscribed to a magazine called Strategy and Tactics magazine when I was a teenager. And to me, it was a hobby. It was immense fun. I found it fascinating. And then I did my studies in philosophy and languages, and I had to get a job. And uh, I found to my surprise that there were these people who called themselves strategy consultants, and they were businessmen. And I, it had never occurred to me that businesses needed things called strategies. And I thought, oh, this is an opportunity to do my hobby. Um, without anybody getting hurt, right? Maybe some people making money, including me. In my time at BCG, I'd, um, you know, I'd, I'd learned this approach to solving client problems. And I'd always had the ambition to write a book about the Battle of Britain because my parents were teenagers at the time and they got bombed and I was fascinated by aircraft as well. I fell in love with Spitfires when I was about six years old and I'd made little models as most kids of my generation did. And I'd never really been convinced by the accounts that I read of this event as to why it was that Fighter Command, that was apparently hopelessly outnumbered, had actually managed to win. And I thought, I'm going to solve this problem. 
and I'll write a book about it when I retire. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I realised that if I waited till I retired, I would be so knackered and tired and played out that I would never get round to do it. And I had a natural career break. I was in Munich. I transferred to London. So I told the London office I would start work in six months' time, and I took six months' unpaid leave and worked furiously hard and got about half of it written. And then when I left BCG a little while later, I finished it off. And that was in 1999. And everybody, every publisher wanted a book on the Battle of Britain for the 60th anniversary in 2000. So my agent found a publisher and that's, that's it. But the, I suppose the interesting point of the story is that when I turned to history, I treated it like a case study. Um, historians tend to treat them as stories where this happened, then that happened, then that happened. And they tend to focus on battles as either clashes of individuals, right? So Waterloo is Wellington versus Napoleon, or as clashes between nations. The Battle of Britain was portrayed as it's the Brits versus the Germans. And actually both of those views is wrong. Um, battles, indeed wars, are clashes between organisations. Who leads the organisation is a very important factor, but it's not the only one. The capabilities of the organisation are important as well. And they're quite different. I mean, the ethos of the Luftwaffe was quite different from the ethos of the army. Uh, likewise, the RAF was a distinct organisation, different from the Royal Navy and the British Army. And fighter command was, as it were, a business unit within the Royal Air Force, and it had its own doctrine, its own way of doing things, its own ethos. So I started on this case as a consultant would. I gathered all the data about the aircraft losses and analysed them. I started with analysis from the ground up and came to some interesting conclusions I found surprising. And I researched a lot of documents. It's all in the public sector did a lot of interviews, and gradually put the story together. So what was your writing process like? I just took the approach that a consultant would take. This um, approach explained more. The Royal Air Force itself got interested. Some senior members of the Air Force read it and thought, ah. So that instead of, you know, our gallant boys defeating these nasty Nazis, we actually have an analysis which is very relevant to us today. You know, why were certain decisions made? Um, it looks at things people don't bother with, like logistics, which is extremely important. It looks at the organisation as a whole. And this could be of value to us. So I found myself going around um, giving talks at various RAF stations. It started, the first one actually was in RAF Cranwell headquarters, as it were, or at least the training centre and going to air power conferences and talking about leadership in the Battle of Britain and so on and so forth. Um, so the military professionals found it particularly interesting. So why, why, why do you feel that 200-year-old um, lessons from a different context are relevant to businesses today? So it, it comes out of a couple of things. Firstly, I believe that building effective organisations and developing and executing good strategies is an art. I think they're both arts, not sciences. If one wants to nitpick, one could say they are a craft. They're, they're built on 
generalizable theoretical principles, but each case is specific, so everybody needs to know how to apply them. If they're more like art than science, the bad news is there's no progress. Science progresses steadily. But, you know, we don't have better artists around today than we did in, you know, the 1500s in Italy, at least not in my view. There are peaks and troughs. And likewise, I don't think there are greater strategists around today in business or anywhere else than Julius Caesar and Napoleon, um, or greater builders of organizations than those two, or Moltke, my particular um, hero. Um, so that's a bit disappointing uh, because each generation has to relearn the lessons learned by previous generations. Um, but the good news is that we can see patterns in the past and we can learn from them if we are careful. Um, nothing ever repeats itself exactly, but there are some things that generally tend to work better than other things. The second thing is that the um, effectiveness and success of an organisation, in my view, is really a function of how well adapted it is to its environment. And what is interesting about uh, recent military history is that the environment of warfare about 200 years ago became um, very unlike the way it had been before. It grew in scale. It meant that a single person was no longer able to control it. Um, it was semi-chaotic, I think we would, we would say today. Uh, it required dealing with very high levels of uncertainty, a lot of complexity and ambiguity. And to coin that hackneyed phrase, it was VUCA. Um, now, at that time, business was just starting. For a long time, people in business were able to kid themselves that the environment was stable. After all, um, the Industrial Revolution was built around machines like the spinning jenny and so it's a sort of pumped out stuff in a regular way henry ford producing model t's and so on and so forth uh and it was all founded on classical economics which is all about equilibrium it gradually became apparent that this was not in fact the case <laughs> and that this apparent stability was transitory and that actually the norm for the business environment is what we talk about today um with people having to make rapid decisions with imperfect information in an environment of high uncertainty where change is fast and uh, you cannot expect to be able to plan much further out than you can see. Well, given that some military organisations have been developed to deal with an environment exactly like that, um, that their methods were very well documented, the way they recruited, the way they trained, the way they selected people, how they approached planning, and all the rest of it. It's all there for us to look at. I thought, well, we're struggling with this. We're, 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 we've inherited in business a model which goes back really to Taylor and the uh, Industrial Revolution before him of the organisation as a machine which is all about efficiency. Whereas uh, the Prussian army in particular, um, building on the writings of Clausewitz, 
who analyzed the methods of Napoleon and built up by Helmut von Moltke had created an organization which clearly behaved like an organism. Today, we would call it a complex adaptive system. And it worked. And it's been copied by other military organizations. Do you feel that there's a limit to the applicability of lessons that we can pick up from military history? There is a genre of business books, you know, lessons from Genghis Khan or what, Attila the Hun and all the rest of it. And um, some of these things I've read are amongst the worst business books I have read. <laughs> <laughs> They are embarrassing, some of them. That sort of gung-ho stuff. And their big weakness, I find, funnily enough, is that they don't understand the military history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very naive about that. There was an HBR article a few years ago that attributed mission command and so on to Rommel, which is a joke. Rommel inherited it like everybody else, but it had been developed a hundred years before he ever put it into practice. I mean, really, please. Anyway, um, <coughs> I think Rommel was the only German general these guys had heard of, so they said, oh, it was him. He made it up. <laughs> One sunny afternoon. Um So, uh, yeah, you've got to be very careful. You've got to be very careful. I think the um, the key is, to, is, is adopting the right level of abstraction. So at one level, if you look at the activities carried out in a business and in, in an army, they have nothing to do with the other at all. I mean, not many businesses carry out night marches and launch surprise attacks <laughs> on the Brecon beacons or get you to dive through sheep dips or whatever, right? Um, and most armies do that kind of shit. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so if you, if you watch what happens at that level, you say, they're nothing to do with each other. Um, at the other level, uh, particularly the, the higher up the level goes, um, I, I think it's not just a metaphor. They are actually doing the same thing. Uh, the same thought processes, um, very similar attitudes to capability development. The capabilities may be rather different. Although if you go to the logistics area, for example, yeah, yeah. If, if you want to recruit a good logistics guy for any business, you know, ex-military is pretty damn good training because they have to get the right stuff in the right place at the right time under extraordinarily demanding um, conditions. Okay, let's move on to your book called The Art of Action. In the book, you discuss the three gaps. So what are those gaps and why are they relevant? The first gap is the gap between plans and actions. So you find that for all sorts of reasons, um, people don't actually do what you thought they were going to do or what they plan to do or what it said in the plan they ought to do um, because maybe they haven't understood or maybe they've understood but they disagree, or maybe they understand and they agree, but they don't like the consequences for them, so they're going to pretend to do this, but actually they're going to do something else or nothing, right? So what does that amount to? That amounts to a gap in alignment. So that's the first gap, the alignment gap. When we make our plans, uh, we're always dealing with imperfect information. Strategies about shaping the future. Well, the future is basically unknown. It's fundamentally unknown. You could have a guess, 
You can do lots of analysis. You can look at the trends. But nobody actually knows what's going to happen next month, let alone next year. And the time horizon is shortening. And the volatility is going up. And because we're all connected these days, something that happens a long way away and seems to have nothing to do with you suddenly has a huge impact, right? And, and the social and political spheres are all drawn together, right? A terrorist attack suddenly has an impact on a load of industries, on the travel industry, tourists, it's largely dyed up. Um, <clears throat> and they're fundamentally unpredictable. So you cannot make a perfect plan. So there is a knowledge gap. And the worst thing you can do with the knowledge gap is to ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist. You have to recognize and embrace the knowledge gap. You can't make a perfect plan. So we don't know everything we'd like to know, but we make a plan. Um, even if we did everything we stipulated, there's still a problem between the actions and the outcomes because the outcomes are not outputs that we produce. They are new states of the world. And what those states of the world are depends not just on what we do, but what other people do. So we launch a new product, and there isn't an automatic process between this product, the projected sales volume and the margins and the profit that results. There are these people in between called the customers, funnily enough, and maybe the distributors and others who may not think our new product is as great as we think they ought to, and they have wills of their own. And we can influence them, but we can't control them. So who knows where the outcome is going to be great. And then there are these buggers called competitors. And they're actually trying to make our lives difficult. And they may see this new product launch and think, right, we're coming in with a superior one next month and blow our plan to smithereens. So there is a gap in effects. The actions we take do not always have the effect that we wish. So you've got the knowledge gap, the alignment gap, and the effects gap. And that sets the seat that sets the agenda so how do we react to them and i guess the the traditional response is always that because we have a knowledge gap we need to get more data correct perfectly common sense so stuff you know well you find out more don't you and what do you do if people aren't doing what you want well you tell them again in a bit more detail And probably a rather louder voice. Add, add more metrics and... And then, yeah, if, if you're not getting where you want to, when you're a manager, you're responsible for that, well, you get a grip on things, right? So you, you, you add some more measures and you tighten up the controls and you have review meetings every fortnight, so every month and so on. So, and I see this happening the whole time. Um, and this doesn't only fail to solve the problem. It usually makes it worse. Okay, so... How does uncertainty change the way that we should do strategy? First of all, think of uncertainty as something that is absolutely central to strategy. It's not something that is adjusted for afterwards. So don't come up with your best estimate and put it down as a single point prediction. That's asking for trouble. Um, the same thing is uncertainty is not risk. We, we classify uncertainty usually as risk, which means it's a problem or it's bad or it's going to throw us off track. That's not. It is an unpredictable chance. Unpredictable chance events are neutral. They're that. They're chance events. Because I don't say that they're going to be bad. Yeah, they, they may be, be opportunities, opportunities. Exactly, yeah. Right? Yeah. It depends on you and your position and where you're coming from. So plan in such a way 
that you start off with a view of the situation that you need to test, right? Don't come up with a single story. So here, here is a way in which you can put all the, the facts together. This is the current situation, that initial orientation. And use your planning process to create what I call a map of the probability space, not a plan. But here is, you know, here's a bell curve. If we think of the bell curve, we got some stuff under the tails. We know from Taleb and others the tails can be fat. First of all, think about what could kill you, the black swan that could kill you, and do something about it. Protect yourself. And you do that by not by thinking, so what could happen, but by thinking about where are we vulnerable? If you look at what happened in all these crises, especially 2008, it's the people with who were less vulnerable, who had the strong balance sheets and so on. I don't know that preliminary work, boring stuff, some of it, who got through best. Then think about the rather unlikely positive things as kickers. Don't assume they're going to happen. But if you're looking at options, you might be more prepared to take an option that is got a kicker attached to it, the one that hasn't. But when you're thinking about options, another rule is gather all the information you do have, base what you try and work out what you don't know on the basis of what you do know, but don't fool yourself about what you know. Map out, map them out as probabilities. And then when you're thinking about, okay, so if we make this move now, that could happen or that could happen. That's a known variable that will affect us. Well, we don't know which way it's going to go. We think it's probably 70-30 this way, but we're not going to assume that now. When you're mapping out your options in that way, Optimize for robustness, not value. People tend to say, "What's going to be the what's the maximum the value maximizing strategy?" They don't ask themselves, "What is the strategy that is most likely to get done?" <laughs> In other words, it isn't just V value; it is also P probability, and the net value is P times V, not V by itself. And if you are in a, in a volatile environment, maximizing P, which is going to have a decent outcome under almost any scenario, may well be a wiser move than maximizing V, which, if it works, is going to make an absolute killing, but it's only got a 20% chance of success. Sure. Then what you need to do is to take some action, but you need to take action not necessarily to commit but to learn. People don't act to learn. They do research and make their plan, and then they act. And then when it all goes wrong, they think, how are we going to get back on track? Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> we need a better buy, plan. We need to... Buy yeah, we need a better plan. No, no, no. <laughs> the plan is to say, what can we do now that is either going to get us to a better place, but not, not where we want to get to ultimately, but never mind, it's going to get us nearer, some way and what actions are we going to take which are going to enable us to understand more both about the nature of the environment and how volatile it really is and about what works and what doesn't uh so do trialing so a friend of mine was strategy director in a well-known uk retailer i mean trialing new product concepts and store layouts is very easy in a retailer they've got hundreds of the bloody things 
What do most of them do? You know, marketing, they do all their market research, they work out what's going to happen, and then they convert all the stores, and it goes wrong. So what these guys did, they, they would always, they, they, they do all their research, and then they tried out in 10 stores. And they would test results against a control. And if it didn't work very well, they'd either modify it or drop it. If it did work, they'd do it in another 10, and they'd do it in 50, and so on. And one of the interesting things about what he told me about this is every one they did, every trial they did, something unexpected happened. They they learned something they didn't even think of, and they tweaked the concept. Now, your entrepreneur is going to recognise the minimal viable product and the pivot. Sure. But managers don't read books mm-hmm. written for <laughs> entrepreneurs. The methodology, once again, is is well known. Sure. Um, and an entrepreneur does that because an entrepreneur has no bloody choice because yeah, yeah, there's nothing. <laughs> you know nothing yeah. about what it is. So he's got to trial it and learn. Sure. Right? Yeah. So you can do that, but you can do that in many, many other circumstances. Then, because you're measuring, you need to know what it is that will be relevant to change your probabilities and then revise the probabilities. So a set of plan assumptions. You're not allowed to make assumptions. You're only allowed to map out probabilities and you change them. You, you, if they don't change, something's wrong, right? And then you gradually adjust. So gradually what you're doing is narrowing in on reality, not on some fantasy promise to the city that you're going to double shareholder value next year and crap and stuff like that. So, and then when... <laughs> When something unexpected happens, you don't try to get back on track. You try to optimise the future reality based on the current reality. The reality has changed, right? Or your perception or your understanding right? of your the Your understanding yeah. of the yeah, reality exactly, has changed. Yeah. You, you've learned more. Yeah, sure. So now you revise the options and you optimise those. One of your clients is a Formula One company. How are they applying this method? And they have to work like this because you never know. You know, they chance masses of data about pace, about tyre wear. They measure temperatures and so on. But actually, when they start a race, they don't know what the actual tyre wear is going to be. The temperature of the track and the tyre is going to fluctuate, which may means we were planned to pit on lap 22. Actually, it's going to be more like 19. If that happens, are we going to get undercut by these, you know, the workout things like that? So, mm-hmm. so watch your tyres, watch your tyres. Okay, you can afford to ease back slightly on the pace, but we've got to make your tyres work. And all that. You know, they're all doing all this sort of thing. And the most other thing of all is uh, there can be a crash. Oh, a crash occur. Right. You know crashes will occur. You do not know when. You do not know between whom. So they're all ready for that. Um, and when it does, you new plan because everything changes. So they're constantly going through this loop very fast of working out the probabilities, right, the bell curve. They discuss the tails. Uh, they have a basic plan. The planning process is very important. And when when things change, I was at a race where the things changed. On the first lap, 30 seconds in, they ditched <laughs> the plan and got a new one. Yeah, sure. They said our bell curve was like that. It's moved over there. Right. So the option for now, and there was no discussion about what had happened, what had gone wrong. Nobody said we was get back on track. They said, new reality, new set of options. And, and produced just that. They were so calm. 
one last thing that I wanted to ask you about. So uh, about about information and about the amount of information in, a, in an unpredictable environment. So basically, in an unpredictable environment, it's not necessarily always better to have more information, since the greater the volume of the information, the harder it can be to make a decision. Yeah. But But then again... Daniel Kahneman, in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, talks about the concept of what you see is all there is, Yeah, which means that we humans often fail to understand that we might be missing a piece of relevant data. Yeah. So do you see that there's a conflict here? Um, no. The human brain is a sense-making machine, or as Kahneman puts it, actually, it's a machine for jumping to conclusions. conclusions yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, yeah. He's dead right. <laughs> um, it's so fascinating to see this happening in real life. Yeah. Um, of course it's not. What you've got to do is to make sure there's more than one story. It's at that point that um, it's particularly dangerous because once people say, oh, it's one of them, I know this. Once they've seen the pattern, you, it's terribly hard to drag them away from the pattern. The only thing you can do is to confront them with somebody else who's seen another pattern and let them fight over it. And then you can get some shifting. More data can be a help. Look, the situation's changed. What is important, I think, is is the um, the detail of the data. What tends to happen is, I, I work this out. I know what the answer to this is. You know, we're gonna um, organic growth doesn't work in this business. We're gonna make an acquisition, and this th these are available, so we'll buy them. Um, and um, they will get more and more information about this company, explaining why it's. Great buy, you know, and 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 you get lost in the weeds, and there are some fundamental questions that have not been asked. So, so the fundamental assumption: Do you really have to acquire in this business? Uh, do you have to acquire now? There are three players. This one looks as if it's the weakest. Um, what if we were to monitor the situation and then go for the number one? Uh, what these people have really got is a technology. Could we get that technology from somewhere else? In other words, at a much higher level, are there different routes? Are there different stories we can tell ourselves? It's a jump to the conclusion. You've got to acquire to get this business. This is available. We've got to get it. Um, so more information um, in the sense of pointing out other things, that this company's performance is rocky, that the chief executive is a drug addict, that whatever, right? And the construction of alternatives, alternative scenarios is what is needed. Um, the Wisiati effect is I've I experienced this. It's a misleading experience usually. And we can see this going on now, and it's a failure to burrow into causality. Um, I don't want anyone ever to believe that I don't I don't believe in analysis. I grew up at BCG. One thing I learned at BCG is the power of analysis. The power of analysis, the power of strategy, right? But the analysis is trying to find driving for insight, not for the next level of detail on something which is itself questionable. Okay, great. Thanks a lot for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. Next steps. Number one, share this podcast on social media. Number two, turn on the voice recorder on your phone, record your thoughts, and send them to sami at bosslevelpodcast.com.
Number three, call your mom. It's been way too long since the last time you called. Okay, until next time.